tonight um, to discuss uh, the matter of our eternal security. This is a topical lesson, which isn't my normal style. I typically go verse by verse, but uh, this doctrine has uh, been on my mind, on my heart for a number of reasons, and so surely at some point, most of us, if not all of us here, have struggled with it or been challenged by it in some way. How, how do we know? How, can, how sure can we be? Uh, this is one of the more controversial parts of our faith and our theology, and uh, even perhaps tonight, now, here, there's people um, or someone here struggling with this, so I thought it would be edifying uh, to develop why we hold this particular view, and, uh, and I want to make sure, again, everybody got the handout, right? I know it's a couple of pages, but uh, we're citing a lot of scripture, and as opposed to making slides, I thought it, you know, everything, most everything is on that handout, so if you wanted to follow along or keep it for your own study, uh, that's for your benefit. But before we get into this, I do have a joke to try to loosen up a little bit. If you can't tell, I have some nerves. So um, <laughs> I found this. I didn't have to dig very deep to find a, uh, you know, a joke on this topic. Uh, it's Baptist humor, though, so, you know. <laughs> Anyways, here it goes. After 20 years of shaving himself every morning, a man in a small southern town decided that he had had enough. He told his wife that he intended to let the, bar the local barber give him a shave each day. And so he put on his hat and coat, and he went to the barber shop. This shop was owned by a pastor in the town of the town's Baptist church. And the barber's wife, whose name was Grace, was working that day. So she performed the task. Grace gave him a shave and sprayed his hair with lilac water and said, that'll be $20. The man thought the price was a bit high, but he paid the bill, and he went on his way to work. The next morning, the man looked in the mirror, and his face was as smooth as it had been, when he left the barber shop from the day before. He thought, not bad, at least I don't have to pay to get a shave each and every day now. But the next morning, the man's face was still smooth, and two weeks later, the man was still unable to find any trace of whiskers on his face. And this became more than he could handle, so he returned to the shop and spoke with the owner. And he said, I thought $20 was a little high for a shave, but she must have done a great job because it's been two weeks and my whiskers haven't started to grow back at all. And the expression on the owner's face didn't change in the expectation of this comment. And he responded, Sir, you have been shaved by grace. And once shaved, always shaved. <laughs> so, okay. All right. So yeah, you guys did like that. That was good. That's right. I can't take credit for it, but yeah, good. All right. So we're going to explore eternal security. Once saved, always saved. And how do we know? And what's involved in all of this, first of all? Um, contrary to what you may have heard or what some people would say, it's a great deal of Scripture. It's not just one or two verses that we're, we're standing on the authority for this. this. This whole topic could easily be developed into a two- or three-part series. Um, all the precepts we would cover are, are found throughout the, throughout the Scriptures, uh, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And much of this matter, much of the content can be categorized. If you were in seminary, you may have heard this before, these terms, but this falls under the branch of theology called soteriology. Is that term familiar to anybody? Soteriology is the study of our salvation. 
and uh, the, the makeup of it, the elements of it. All right, so much or maybe some parts of this lesson would, would sound maybe a little academic, but uh, I, I encourage you to apply some of this, this knowledge, these terms and concepts and principles to your own study and to your own worship, because I think you'll be blessed to see just how much wisdom there is to behold of God. I believe that this content, uh, these principles, these matters, are the heavier rations of Scripture, or the meat of the Word, um, so to speak, as opposed to the milk. But uh, yeah, what's at stake here? To understand eternal security, what other doctrines are relevant? Okay, and uh, you can follow along now in your um, handout. If you need one, let me know. To start with, though, our assurance, of course, in a very special way, we believe in eternal security because we are assured of it. In Scripture, John in his first letter says, chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So that we may know, and it's not just a hope or a belief. The word know is there. Also with eternal security, it is essential for us to grasp the concept of forgiveness. Thank you, Brent. Because if you haven't heard or asked or been asked, you can ask yourself this now. How many of your sins were yet future when Christ died on the cross? And the answer, of course, is all of them, right? It's not just the ones that you had committed up to the point of being born again. It's the sin that you will fall into tomorrow or next week. All of our sins were future when he died on the cross, and we want to remember that. So forgiveness needs to be understood. Faith alone is featured here. <clears throat> there is no room for any of us to do any boasting in heaven, because if we're there, we're there entirely by faith, not by any contributions that we've made to the completed work of Christ. This is also fundamental to understand God's love, which is unconditional love. So if there's even a single condition attached to the Lord's willingness to sustain a relationship with his children, then it's not unconditional, right? The other notion that's entangled in this is the whole issue of evading the traps of legalism. It's amazing how many of us, myself included, we subject ourselves to the law, get drawn into what is called legalism, and that's a form of self-deception. Uh, Pastor Conrad hit the whole topic pretty hard a few weeks ago in his sermon. We cannot attribute to Christ or what Christ has completed. And if we do so or attempt to do so is actually a form of pride, which is remarkable because pride can manifest itself in some unexpected ways. But the biggest concern here with the doctrine of eternal security to focus on is Christ alone, and that's all throughout the scripture. We'll be hitting several examples as we go. Additionally, the topic of guilt removal is part of the issue here. So I have some illustrations and quotes uh, you may have heard before or be familiar with. I don't know where this illustration came from, but it's very constructive for understanding our salvation. There are three options open to God as sinners would stand before him in an eternal courtroom. Okay, three options for the Lord. One, option one, he is just and he could condemn them, right, which would be just. Not good for us, but 
but he would be just in doing that. Option two, he might receive them just the way that they are, which is not going to happen uh, because that would violate his own nature and compromise his, his righteousness, right? And then there's option three, and that is that he can deal with sinners by changing them into righteous people. And so how does the Lord accomplish that? This is what we call justification. And uh, we won't specialize in all these other doctrines, but uh, we will explore justification quite a bit. The word justification means declaring one righteous on some basis, and a basis for the Lord here that doesn't compromise his own righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now we have, I believe, no true ability to understand what that actually means. We call the whole concept imputation, that the Lord Jesus, pure, righteous, sinless, he was made for sin, he was made sin for us in our place, that we might have his righteousness. But I, I, I think that we don't really truly understand the depth of that uh, because his ways, his thoughts are so much higher than ours. We can't fully comprehend his purity on one hand, and we certainly don't perceive the extent of our corruption as sinners on the other. And uh, that divide is so vast between us and God, but yet he made God, God made him to be sin for us. And that's a key idea underscoring everything here. Now, when did God accomplish that? Right. When he died on the cross. Mark 15, 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Elil, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And when he said this, this was the only time all throughout eternity that Jesus couldn't call him father. He couldn't because he was in our place. And this event was anticipated all throughout the Old Testament, most Famously and uh, arguably uh, uh, Isaiah 53, verse 10. And yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. And that's what justification is. Indeed, he justified many. All right, a lot of these verses, well, all of them should be in your handout, so we'll, we'll, um, we'll cover them as they pertain to this justification. Also in Romans 4, verse 5, And the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He justifies the ungodly. That's all of us. Amen? Paul nails this in chapter 5 of Romans as well. Therefore we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So how are we justified? 
by faith, not by anything that we do, but by faith. Colossians 2, this is a great passage because it uses an example. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross, canceling our record of debt or certificate of debt is what your Bible may say. This is a reference to a a practice that existed in the ancient world um, of the legal system. In those days, if you were condemned before a court, you had a debt to, to society, and you would pay the debt by serving time in prison, however long the sentence was determined. So... As you would serve the, the time, the jailer kept a record of your stay, and uh, he would record an initial each year. Once the time was served, the jailer signs it off and then gives it to you to keep your certificate. If by chance you had happened to escape during your uh, sentence, the remaining time, what happened to, to that? Goes to the jailer, right? And that... That's why in the, the Philippian jailer was going to kill himself when the earthquake opened all the jail cells, right? He assumed everyone had fled, right? And that time they owed would be imputed to him. But anyways, the record of debt. When, when the debt was paid, the time was served, the jailer signs off as paid in full. And the term in the Greek is totalistai, which may sound familiar, Right? That's exactly what Jesus declared as he hung on the cross. Translated in John 19, verse 30, it is finished. Totalistai, paid in full. And so part of the idea here is that there is no double jeopardy. The certificate that was signed off and then given to stay with you or us was your assurance against ever serving any kind of penalty for that crime again. Because it had been paid in full. Just like the penalty that you and I were due for our debt has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. And we cannot add to that, right? Romans 3.26 says, To demonstrate at the time, at at the present time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No. But by law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. To try to justify yourself by the deeds of the law is to reject the justification that's already been determined before the court. And, uh, you know, like we said, that is a dangerous and harmful prescription. So, as we work through this, here's a a quote to kind of Merge us in long. Um, you have this probably in blanks. So the quote is, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. I'm not sure who gets the credit for that. But the point is to provoke the reality that salvation has at least three tenses. And you can consider this a template for salvation. The past tense of salvation is what we call justification. That's a gift of God, 
uh, of everlasting life that comes through or by faith, through, uh, by grace, through faith, faith alone in Christ alone. That's it. Gift of God received by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Justification is the past tense of salvation. I think we covered that. The present tense of salvation is the undergoing process that we call sanctification. That's a work in progress. It involves the maturing of the believer in faith and works. And all living Christians today are incomplete in terms of their sanctification. It's a present tense, meaning it's in progress. It's underway. And, of course, the future tense is what we call glorification. That's a result of the two former phases. All believers will be glorified, that is, in the resurrected body, like Christ. But some will have more glory or inheritance or reward than others. So all believers will be glorified, but that doesn't mean equally. Um, Those are the three tenses of salvation. Past tense, acquittal from sin, and imputation of righteousness. That's justification. Present tense is the deliverance from the power of sin. An unbeliever doesn't have power over sin, right? But the born-again believer does through the Holy Spirit. Separation from the power of sin, we call that sanctification. That's also a work of God. But we sing about that, and we sing about all of these concepts, but that, that sanctification in particular may not be as obvious. In, in a couple of the songs, you know, we have heard the line, he breaks the power of canceled sin. Does that sound familiar? What does that mean? He sanctifies us. He separates us from that. Um, that's one of the advantages of understanding these concepts and in, in, in the terms is it, it increases, it grows our affection for the Lord, our love for Him. It enhances your praise, your study, even your serving. So I just, I exhort you to be sensitive, allow Him to impress whatever He uh, would desire for you to understand more deeply. But uh, moving on here, we have the future tense of salvation is glorification. That's the liberation from the very presence of sin. That's the final process. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. All right? So those are the three terms, past, present, and future, if you will, of salvation. The three tenses. Uh, now, we, oh, I just want to, uh, between justification and sanctification, it's important to understand the difference here. So, some comparisons. Justification is for us, for the believer, right? Sanctification is in us. Justification declares the sinner righteous. Sanctification makes the sinner righteous. Justification removes the guilt and penalty of sin. Sanctification removes the growth and power of sin. So, different, but uh, we benefit greatly from each. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's the big question. Eternal security. Can a believer lose their salvation? No. Why not? Or how? Well, there's quite a few reasons, um, some of which we already just touched on. But to kind of build some more continuity here, what's been laid, 
I want to separate what is not, what we maybe don't believe. And I'm not trying to provoke anyone, because you may have different beliefs on this. But speaking in broad terms, without referring to denominations, there's two theological positions in, uh, in terms of well, soteriology, two popular ones. Uh, the Arminian view uh, denies that uh, the, the true child of God is eternally secure. So no eternal security with Arminianism. Contrary to that, the Calvinist stance is that if one does not persevere in holiness, that they were never regenerated in the first place, or they weren't part of the elect. And so it's not just eternal security of what's involved here. Um, and both Calvinism and Arminianism, is, it's called, there is what's called perseverance of the saints. And so an Arminian believer says, one is only secure if they obey to the end. And in contrary to that, the Calvinist says, one, if one doesn't obey to the end, then they weren't saved to begin with. So they're kind of opposing views, but they sort of send up, you know, end up at the same place. And there's been centuries of, of disagreement between these theological positions. There's a lot of good pastors, scholars, and, and um, teachers on both sides of this issue, historically and today. There's many names that you're familiar with that may be in one camp or the other. Uh, the doctrine tonight that I'm submitting is, is, is that this disagreement is a failure to distinguish, uh, well, the middle ground, basically, the, between justification on one hand and then the possibility of different inheritances or rewards on the other. So with Calvinism, the eternal security and perseverance of the saints is where you would find out if you have been predestinated by enduring to the end. And then the Arminian view is the opposite. Only those that persevere to the end are saved. And both of these, I would say, overlook the middle ground, and that's what we're leaning into. Um, I don't have a name for it. Calminian. <laughs> Calminian, that's a good one. Um, I have heard the name Overcomer, which, you know, sounds nice. Um, but we believe that eternal security, we believe in it in terms of justification. But there is a difference between entering heaven and inheriting. In Hebrews 3.14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The word share is also translated as participant, partaker, one who shares in. And if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Very key word here. There's an if. If we do that, we'll be shareholders. So the child of God is obligated to persevere. But they might not, right? Right? We fall away, backslide. Does that mean that they forfeit their salvation? No. They may face discipline in time, for we know that the Lord rebukes and chastens the ones that he loves. Uh, but there is also the loss of sanctification or reward or inheritance at the judgment seat of Christ. That's referred to in 2 Corinthians 5.10. It's a whole subject matter on its own, obviously related to this doctrine. But, uh, okay, 
enough on that. As we deal with this issue of eternal security to move forward, we discover that there are all three persons of the, the divine administration, the Trinity, that have a share in keeping to completion that which God has already concluded. So, in other words, the foundation of our eternal security depends on God the Father. It also depends on God the Son. And the foundation of eternal security depends on God's Holy Spirit. All three members are active participants in that security, and we will explore that now. And we are making good time, so. Uh, The first is God the Father. So, our eternal security depends on His sovereign, eternal purpose, which is affirmed in Ephesians 1, verses 11 and 12. It says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. All right? And we'll hit the predestined um, meaning in a minute. Our eternal security, that's his sovereign uh, eternal purpose. It also depends on the Father's sovereign promise, his promise promise, right? Not our faithfulness. Romans 4.16 says this is, that is why it depends on faith, meaning nothing on man's end, in order that the promise may rest on grace, which is everything on God's end, and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. So his promise is sure because it doesn't rely on us. It rests entirely on him. That's what's meant by grace, right? God's Righteousness, God's riches at Christ's expense. If it depended on any point upon human ability to continue to believe, then the promise wouldn't be secure, right? Or in other words, if there was a way to mess it up, then I would find a way to mess it up, right? Okay, the promise that those who believe will be saved is confirmed all throughout Scripture, Uh, Back in Genesis 15, Abraham believed God, and that was counted to him for righteousness. John 3.16, the most popular verse in the Bible. Um, Acts 16.13, sir, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Um, His sovereign promise. There's a number of verses you could tag along with that. So eternal security also depends on God the Father's infinite power. I had some scripture to go along with this, but I had to trim some for time's sake. Uh, But the idea is thanks to the work of Christ on the cross, on the cross, God the Father is now free and he is mighty to save us because our sin has been paid for. He's not compromising his own righteousness uh, to declare us righteous because uh, the death of Christ enabled him to do so despite our failures. So our eternal security doesn't depend on any of our worthiness, is the point. Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and his willingness to pay that price rendered God able to forgive and receive us because his blood and his life. All right? The Father has purposed not only to save us, but also to keep us saved. In John chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And so if anyone who was ever saved has lost their salvation, that Jesus wouldn't be able to bring this report that would contradict his insisting to the Father, who, again, this is his will, the will of him who sent me that's being accomplished. Of those that you gave me, I should lose nothing. I should lose nothing. That's the Lord's commitment. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Life's not eternal if you can lose it, right? John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. So we are in the hand of Christ, right? He gives eternal life and they will never perish. In the Greek, that never, the word used for never is a a double emphatic. So our English would be like they would never, ever, ever perish. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one able, is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So we're in the father's hand as well. Notice the first is Jesus, and then the second is the father's. That brings both of their hands together, and the issue is in theirs, not ours, if you belong to him. Okay? All right, so that's the, the, the father's sovereign purpose. We're going to circle back to that one, actually. All right, his sovereign promise, his infinite power, his intent to keep us in his hand. All right, consider this passage, Romans 5, verse 6 and 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were unworthy, God chose out of his own volition to die. So there's no contribution on our part. Verse 9, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Amazing. God, in his omniscience, had full awareness of our depravity before he saved us, and therefore any new manifestation of sin in our lives after redemption cannot be any incentive to God to withdraw his grace and his salvation because he was not caught off guard by any of our sin, right? It was all future when Christ died. Okay, we're still doing good on time. I almost cut this part out. But the fifth aspect of our security that depends on the Father, we won't go through as many examples for uh, each member, but um, this also depends on his prayer to, uh, his answer to the prayer of the Son. One of the many titles that Christ has for his followers in the Gospels um, is those whom you have given me. He uses this label to refer to his believers in John 17, which is a high priestly prayer. The whole chapter is a window of intimacy between the Father and Son where Jesus prays to the Father and he refers to us as those whom you have given me. 
a number of times, seven times, I believe. So you have verse 2, verse 9, 11, uh, many examples. They're in the notes there, um, but I'll skip down to verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And notice he transfers the accountability. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas is annotated here as an exclusion. And then, um, yeah, here we go, down to verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with you where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We know that the Father always answers the prayers of the Son, and the Son just passed the responsibility of our eternity to the Father. All right? Um, So, now we have one more point here. With the purpose of God the Father, this is a little bit more academic, if you will, but there's a chain of five bonds that uh, God details for us. Paul writes it out, the Holy Spirit through Paul, and this is in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. Romans 8, by the way, if there was a book in the Bible you could call the one on eternal security, it would be Romans 8. Um, So I would encourage you to study that. But uh, Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, so the eternal decisions and foreknowledge of God involves more than just a restoration of relationship between himself and believers, right? It also involves the assurance not only of our justification, but also of our sanctification. And that may be surprising to some people. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Amen. All right, five links here. They are foreknowledge, predestination, called, justified, glorified. And we could develop this for the rest of the evening, but uh, we'll just quickly examine these ideas Foreknowledge, predestination, called, justified, glorified. You'll find all three of them in verse 29 and 30. Uh, But uh, the process starts with God's foreknowledge. This whole progression of his purposes carried um, into God's plan by divine foreknowledge. And the decision then is predestined or predetermined. Uh, We hit on the Ephesians passage earlier with this sovereign promise in chapter 1, in whom we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things to the counsel of his will. Predestined means planned in advance. It's pretty simple. Paul also in Ephesians 1 earlier, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him, in love, having predestined us to adoption 
as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. And that's when God first started dealing with us, was before the foundation of the world. He had you in mind. And, um, yeah, aren't you glad, right, that the Lord plans ahead? He didn't wait to see if you cheat on your taxes or blow up toilets or something. Um, All right, next, let's see. We are called, and that's a call to respond to him. You'll find this all throughout Scripture. One quick example is John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's a simple example, but there's several more. Of course, then, he justifies. We uh, touched on that quite a bit, and that the uh, judicial procedure in which we are announced righteous in view of the Lord. We looked at many of those passages. Of course, then, uh, them who he justifies... He also glorifies, and that's all throughout Scripture as the fifth step. This is a clear statement of the eternal security of the saints with the five unbreakable bonds noted by Paul in Romans 8. Okay, that sums up the basis of how we depend on the Father for our eternity. It also rests on, of course, His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? In Romans 8, the question is asked in verse 34, Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. And so the guy that covered the charge for us at the cross is also in the courtroom, standing, making a case on our behalf. And uh, John 5, Acts 17, and other places... Jesus is God's appointed judge. All right, Christ is whom the believer has trusted for salvation because we cannot trust ourselves, right? We must believe and trust on him. Furthermore, he is the one that died. More than that, he was raised to life and sits at the right hand of God. Of course, there's a number of passages that echo that truth. So in addition to that, all of that, he is right now um, presently as we sit in here interceding for us at the right hand of God as our defense. Do you think he's competent? Amen. Yeah. I think so. All right, so who can condemn? Paul answers that with four defenses. They're all taught elsewhere in the scripture, but he assembles them here in Romans eight thirty-four. Christ died, he was risen, he advocates, he intercedes. If God has already justified the man who believes in Jesus, how can anyone bring a charge against his already justified one? That's called double jeopardy, right? Double jeopardy. That's not happening. All right. The justification comes from the imputed righteousness of Christ. It is a legal matter. It's ours legally. The strongest evidence of eternal security, in my opinion, is this whole precept of justification by faith alone. All right. So you can... Develop that further if you'd like. But it is a legal matter between God and us. It's not a subject of merit. And therefore, it cannot be lost by demerit. All right. Like a father, God can and does correct his children. But they always remain his sons and daughters. Remember the prodigal son example. He messed up. Bad but he was still welcome home. He 
He may have lost his inheritance, but he never lost his sonship. There's a significant point made by that illustration. Christ Jesus is the one who died, who is to condemn, if the penalty has already been paid. When we trust in Christ, we haven't suddenly become sinless, but we are proclaimed as such because our sin, past and future, had been covered, paid for. Memorize 2 Corinthians 5.21 if you haven't. Commit that to your mind. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Certainly, of course, our security depends on Christ's substitutionary life and death. That's all throughout the book of Romans. It also rests upon his present session as our uh, advocate and our intercessor. Um, We covered that. And he saves to the uttermost. Hebrews 7, verse 23, but he because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he, is all, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In other words, his term of office doesn't expire. He's there to ensure our eternity. And um, one of the frequent criticisms towards this doctrine we're reviewing is that it will lead you or us to sin more which is interesting. Um, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? And John also says that's just the opposite in his first epistle for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So our motivation to flee from sin and to obey is out of gratitude and affection and love. Amen? Amen. Um, All right, now there's one more member of the Godhead, and we're going to start winding down. It also rests, our eternal security depends upon the Holy Spirit, of course. And this is also a point we could spend uh, quite a bit of time on. All right, the the ministries of the Holy Spirit are all throughout Scripture. You have the ministry of regeneration. There's his baptizing ministry. That's in many Scriptures. We're just going to concentrate on his sealing ministry. You can find that in 2 Corinthians and much of Ephesians. But what am I talking about with sealing? Jesus' tomb was sealed, right? What does that mean? What did that mean? No one could get in, right? No one could break it open. It was sealed. There's several books in the scripture that are sealed. The 144,000 are sealed during the tribulation. Sealing, uh, much of that um, in Scripture has an effectual, um, uh, there's a, a, I forget the word, it's an effectual feature of this. And so let's go through some of these passages. 2 Corinthians 1, and it is God, verse 22, who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. His seal on us is of protection and ownership. And uh, giving us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. It's a down payment that seals the bargain. The first installment which secures a legal claim, like a pledge. It's evidence of good faith, obligating the party to consummate the commitment that's involved. The Holy Spirit 
is, was given as a down payment or first fruits to be followed by more, and uh, that's also in Romans 8 and elsewhere. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Well, that's interesting. So how long does that sealing endure? Until the day, right? Until the day of redemption, the final step. And so a broken seal then would be evidence that the safeguard or keeping was inadequate. Do you think you could break this is it the seal of the Holy Spirit? No? Uh, yeah, doubt it. Uh, can Satan break that seal? No. I'm sure he would like to. Okay, so that's the Holy Spirit. We've covered uh, a number of concepts, a number of precepts with verses, justification, imputation, sanctification, predestination. Let's take one more before we wrap this up. What about adoption? You realize that we have more than just exoneration. We have forgiveness, which suggests a restoration of relationship. You can call that reconciliation. But also with sonship or adoption in Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And uh, and the... The, the language Abba is used as an intimate form of father, like Dada or Papa. All right, um, 16. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. We have deceived, or excuse me, received the spirit of adoption. And that makes us members of family. We've been adopted and grafted into the family of God, which has all kinds of uh, fantastic benefits and implications. Galatians 4 picks this up, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Here it is again. Paul uses the same phrase that he did in Romans. So we are brothers and sisters eternally now. Amen. That was God's plan. That was his intention from the beginning, to have us adopted into his family. Back in Ephesians 4, we hit this. He chose us and him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of, his, to the, praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of grace. Once a son, always a son. The prodigal son example, consider that again. He squandered his inheritance, but the father's love and acceptance was not contingent upon his works, right? He never lost his sonship, okay? So, eternal security, and, and uh, we've still got some time, so. Our eternity is committed into God's hands, God the Father and the Son, Sealed by his Holy Spirit, and I believe he's capable 
and our destiny is secure in him. If it depended on us, it would not be secure, right? That's frightening to think about. That would be terrifying, actually, and exhausting. Because if there was a way to mess it up, I would mess it up, right? But he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. And there are some cautions with this doctrine. And uh, that is that we're not under the law again, right? Christ is the fulfillment of the law. We obey out of love and respect, progressively becoming conformed into the image of Christ. That means repent and flee from sin. When you're saved by the Holy Spirit, or when you're saved, we have the Holy Spirit to draw upon at any time of temptation, trial, or disaster. And that means that we have the opportunity for sin to no longer reign in our life and no longer be enslaved to it. Um, He breaks the power of canceled sin, right? Uh, So what does this mean for you, and how will you respond to the Spirit? Every one of us here, if you're saved, uh, are you're saved for a purpose. You're predestined for a specific ordination. And so, in response, I urge you to commit to him. And that looks different for a lot of people, what your commitment. But it can involve a lot of things. One thing for sure it will include, if you commit, is dedication to a systematic program to really learn your Bible. Um, And I'm not talking about a devotional that you read in the mornings. That's great. But I'm talking about getting involved in an in-depth study. Um, If you're not already going, you could start with coming to any of the small groups. I look around. I'm pretty sure everybody here comes to small group. Um, But if you don't or if you, uh, you know, need um, assistance in that, we have the Seekers class which is led by Raymond, the Generations class led by John, Foundations class led by Todd, Generations 2.0, I think. I don't know if they have a name, but that's uh, Phillips class. I lead the Young Adult College and Career, and Pastor Aaron leads the students, and then, of course, the young ones have their classes. Uh, There's no reason that any of us shouldn't be in small group on Sunday mornings, but I'm even talking about going beyond that. Um, the women's Bible study, uh, breakfast studies. If you don't have one, um, you could start your own. I have plenty of content to recommend. Um, it's called the Bible. <laughs> but um, you need to get into some form of, uh, again, an inductive study, methodical program. Go through it verse by verse, book by book. book. Challenge yourself to rely on the Lord to understand Uh, his precepts. Try to learn some Hebrew and learn some Greek. Um, As a Christian, the place that I've grown the most personally is in small group. And personally, for me, I've grown the most teaching. But it doesn't have to look like leading a small group or, or standing behind the pulpit. You should be teaching your spouse. You should be teaching your children, your friends, and your coworkers. Um... But yeah, small groups for sure is a place, and then studies, small studies is the place where you can learn because you'll be able to ask questions without embarrassment or concern, and the Holy Spirit will move in those. So that is my exhortation to respond to his calling now. Any questions? 
All right.